All right, we're going to be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. Yeah, we've been talking about the New Testament a lot, so I thought, why not throw it back to the, the Old Testament, you know? Do something different, switch it up. Uh, we're going to read a lot of verses tonight, just 20. 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 20. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. Every day in your presence is a gift, and we, um, honestly, I don't uh, cherish it as much as I should. But you're so loving to us, you're so gracious, you're so pursuing. I think I speak for all of us to say that we confess our desperate need for you tonight. Some of us have, are, are riding a spiritual high, you know, we just have felt like everything is going right. Our times with you are amazing. You speak to us, we're, we're listening, um, but we still need you desperately. And there's other of us, others in this room that um, maybe are going through some type of a dark night of the soul where Everything is quiet, everything is still, everything hurts, there's confusion, and maybe we come in tonight wondering, where are you, God? We're desperate for a touch of your grace. We pray that you would speak to us tonight. We come humbly to your word, not in any way, knowing that we always put our own things into it, and we just ask that you would help us not to tonight, that we would be able just to listen to what you have to say. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20, very familiar portion of Scripture, so I'm sure that we all, or a lot of us, know where we're at, but let me start reading. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets, Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, which is Yahweh, Right? And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself, for he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. 
And they cried aloud and cut themselves as after their custom with sores and lances and until the blood gushed up upon them. After, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation had, oh, sorry, but, oh my gosh, I lost my spot, of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he prepared the altar of the Lord that it had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about, he made a trench about, oh my gosh, this is difficult tonight. These words are too small. I think I need glasses. (laughs) This is not good. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let no one, not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you for bearing with me in my uh, need for glasses, apparently. I'm going to schedule a, uh, an appointment with the eye doctor. C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest writers, not only in Christian literature, but also in just literature in general. If you haven't gotten to read anything of his, I really encourage you to do it. His simple and concise prose allowed millions to understand the complex ideas of Christian doctrine in his infamous mere Christianity, which is a great intro into his work. His fictional portrayal of the powers of darkness in his famous The Screwtape Letters brought millions more to the realization of the world that they could not see. And then, but more famously, Lewis wrote what is called The Chronicles of Narnia. This is where most of us get to know him first. In this fictional series, it's full of magical beasts, talking animals, kings and queens, and of course, a lion. The reader, uh, the reader follows a group of children who kind of go in between their world and into this magical world called Narnia. The children leave their ordinary lives behind, full of war and, uh, and, and separation from their family, and they end up becoming kings and queens in a life totally different than the one they had before. 
What is fascinating in this story is how these two worlds, the modern and the magical, inhabit a space that is so different than each other, but they're also so deeply connected. In his imagination, Lewis had two realms or two realities that were connected, whether it be through a wardrobe or a, wardrobe or a painting, that these children could go in and out, as they were called. In The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, Lucy, the first of four siblings, stumbles into the world of Narnia. And please allow me to read just a few sentences of uh, this story. Looking into the inside of the wardrobe, she, Lucy, saw several coats hanging up, mostly long fur coats. There was nothing Lucy liked so much as the smell and the feel of fur. She immediately stepped into the wardrobe and got in among the coats and rubbed her face against them, leaving the door open, of course, because she knew it was very foolish to shut oneself in any wardrobe. It was almost quite dark in there, and she kept her arms stretched out in front of her so that she would not bump her face into the back of the wardrobe. She took another step in, then two or three steps, always expecting to feel the woodwork against her fingertips. But she could not feel it. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy, still going further in and pushing the soft folds of the, co the coats aside to make room for her. Then, noticed, then she noticed that there was something crunching under her feet. I wonder, is that more mothballs, she thought, stooping down to fill it with her hand, but instead feeling the hard, smooth wood of the floor of the wardrobe. She felt soft, powdery, and extremely cold. The next moment she found that she was rubbing her face against, and hands, what, sorry, next moment she found that she was rubbing her face, her face and hands, well, it was no longer soft fur, but something hard and even prickly. Why, this is just like branches of trees, explained Lucy. And then she saw that there was a light ahead of her, not a few inches away where the back of the wardrobe had ought to be, but long away off. Something cold and soft was falling on her. A moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood at nighttime with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air. When you and I read scripture, we find ourselves at a disadvantage. One of my biggest, and I mean biggest pet peeves, is when I hear people say, the Bible's basic. The Bible's easy to understand. There is nothing basic about this book. You and I are at a big disadvantage because this beautiful book was written in a world so far away from where we stand today. And every time we open it, we bring our world in and run against a, whole, a totally different world. And we try to sort through our world and our way of thinking with what would have influenced these incredible writers of old and try to sort through the context. You hear preachers say that all the time. And the Spirit is gracious to us. Am I saying that it's impossible for everyone except academics to understand the Bible? Of course not. The Holy Spirit guides us and He leads us, even with our modern way of thinking. But we live in a world that's so far away from this book that we really have to learn what it means to inhabit a different world for us to understand what this is trying to say. It's like Lucy and Narnia, two worlds apart, but we're looking for our wardrobe. 
We're looking for a moment where we stop feeling the fur of the modern world and start letting the prickly forest trees run against our face of the biblical world. Or instead of feeling the wood under our feet of the, the world, the day-to-day that we live in, walking in the snow that the biblical authors did as well. When we read scripture, and each time you and I open this incredible book, we attempt to walk through this wardrobe. Skimming the surface of this book is not enough. Looking for information or just facts is not good enough. This book wasn't written so that uh, we could know some cool facts about a guy named Jesus in a nation called Israel. We were meant to immerse ourselves into the stories of God so that our lives can take on new meanings and new purpose. Our dedication to Scripture, if we really think we're dedicated, must be that we're not just opening this book to get a couple words into our system. We're looking to find the story that you and I can live. We're looking to immerse ourselves in a world that is so much different than ours. When we read the pro- this story, this famous story in the book of 1 Kings, we, are, we know the characters very well. Elijah, the great prophet, the prophet that is an example to all other prophets. We know Ahab, the one who it was said that did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Hopefully that's not next to your name, right? We know Jezebel and the cultic worship of the idol Baal, and we know the people of Israel always in the middle, always never giving everything to God. The story is famous for its fire, its mockery, its eradication of evil, and of course, its reign. But we're not here just to understand a story, we're here to live it. We want to walk in the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel to the point that, the, that we stand on Mount Carmel ourselves. And so, as we walk through this story tonight, I want to give you a forewarning that there's going to be a lot of historical context in this teaching, a lot more than I intended to when I first started writing it. But I think we need it to understand the meat and for us to actually immerse ourselves into this story. So bear with me, and hopefully it's a bit interesting, as we walk through the story and hopefully we get to know how to live this story in our own lives. Is everybody with me? Okay. To properly inhabit this story, it's important to go back all the way to the beginning. The biblical biblical scholars teach us about grand narratives that run from the beginning of Scripture all the way through the end. You've probably heard of the meta-narrative of Scripture, which goes something like creation, the fall, redemption, and regeneration, a story that you can trace from beginning to end that kind of binds all of the Scripture together into one big story about God and Jesus. There's another one of these narratives that I find very interesting called the ABA story. In short, the entire Bible can be split up into these three different stages. The first stage is plan A. God's original design for creation was that he, the supreme ruler and king of all, would lovingly make his home in, on his crea- in his creation on earth. He would rule with his presence and his divine love, and that he would be the one true king that would rule all the people of the earth and all of his creation. God is so loving that during creation, he decided to share his rule with people, two people named Adam and Eve, that would be his image bearers, that would go before him as kind of a sign pointing to God. This is what God is like. But being God-like wasn't enough for Adam and Eve. They wanted to be God themselves. Co-leading wasn't enough. They wanted to rule instead of God. 
the fall marred humans' ability to rule under, God's prop, uh, under God properly and caused creation to need redemption. And only under God as the one true king can creation be fully restored. So God, in his plan A of continuing him being the king of all, decides that he's going to work his blessings into creation through one family, the family of Abraham. Come on, people. All right, we got this. Interaction. Through Abraham, right? Through the family of Abraham, God will work. You guys know the, the verse in Genesis chapter 12. Well, I will bless all the nations through you, right? He was going to rule and reign through this little people, this little people of Israel that would be his instruments of blessing, of love, and grace to the rest of the world. So he delivers his people out of slavery, right? And he calls them to himself. He becomes their king, their governmental structure, if we can call it that, was a theocracy. God rules and reigns, and his people follow him. Are you with me? Okay. Life under Yahweh as king in plan A was defined by gracious deliverance, faithful obedience, and loving presence. So central to the identity of Israel is that Yahweh graciously delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. Over and over, if you've ever gone through the Old Testament, you'll be shocked at how many times God says something to the effect, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. They were never allowed to forget that they were graciously delivered from the hand of ens from enslavement. There was nothing Israel did to deserve this deliverance. They cried out to God and he saved them. And their identity as a people was supposed to be shaped around this reality that they did not deserve God's presence, but he dwelt there anyway. And so, this would have led them into a life of humility and gratitude. Humility because they were undeserving, but gratitude because God delivered them anyway. And Yahweh's rule over his people required faithful obedience, the second characteristic of plan A. He delivered them out of slavery to bless the world, calling them into a life that actually shared his presence by obedience. If they were going to be the co-laborers that Adam and Eve were not, they had to live as image bearers as he designed it. So he gives them a law, one to follow in obedience, one to dedicate their life to so that they would not be like the world, but also bring blessing into the world as a new way of living under the one true king. Are you with me? And then lastly, the Lord sets up his home in a tabernacle in the midst of his people, a loving presence to all of those around him. Just as Yahweh was lovingly present with Israel, so Israel was supposed to be the same for people around them. They were supposed to be gracious to the sojourner, or they were supposed to give justice to the oppressed. They were supposed to be an expression of Yahweh's presence in the world. And interestingly enough, the characteristics of Israel under the rule of God as their king is the same as the church. Out of his abundant love, God reached down and touched our lives. He delivered you and I from a, sla a slavery to sin. We have been graciously delivered, have we not? We're also called to a life of faithful obedience. We're called to a life of regeneration. We're not only uh, made right in the sight of God, but we have been given a new spirit, one that testifies of Jesus and calls us into living like him so that we can be the loving presence to the people around us. 
The church are supposed to become this faithful people. We are supposed to be God's loving presence to the world around us. Or as the elder John writes, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Under God, the church is a beautiful, counterformative community, one that looks nothing like the power dynamics of the world, but that shines in the eternal pursuing love of God to those around us. This is plan A. But unfortunately, plan A doesn't last long for Israel. And it wasn't because God wasn't faithful to Israel, but because the people were unfaithful to him. As you know, Israel pretty much immediately enters into a rhythm of rebellion and compromise, and God allows them to go into some sort of punishment for their disobedience, and then graciously delivers them once again, calling them to faithfulness and loving presence. But when we turn to 1 Samuel, the story takes a disastrous turn. In Samuel chapter 8, we read the people say, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. The answer from the Lord is heartbreaking. He says to the prophet Samuel, listen to all that they, the people, are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Plan A ends and plan B starts. The grand narrative enters into its second chapter. While God still rules and reigns and brings forgiveness to Israel because he is just so good and gracious, during plan B, the story of the Old Testament becomes more about the human kings rather than just God. At the center of Israel's rebellion is their unending desire to be like the other nations. This little nation that was supposed to be humble and small but bring the most powerful God in his presence to the rest of the world couldn't take being humble and small any longer. And God was gracious and he granted them their request. And almost immediately we can see that plan B is not going to work. Saul begins his reign well but very quickly deteriorates and is unable to lead the people of Israel to faithful obedience. David replaces Saul, and while David is loved by God and from his offspring the promised Messiah will come, David is imperfect to say the least. Some of his decisions bring death and destruction to the people of God. I don't know if you know that. And then finally, through Solomon, David's son, the compromise completes its full takeover of Israel. 200 years, are you with me? Yeah? Okay. 200 years before Ahab rules, right before we get to our story, Solomon takes the throne. Solomon embodies all of the greatest temptations that were fighting for Israel's attention. Solomon, like Israel, desired to be like the other nations, and he lusted for political position. And so he used political marriages to gain influence and power. Israel, the little nation, was meant to be humble in the sight of the world, but they wanted to make political alliances so they could gain what they desired, to be like the other nations. So Solomon starts by marrying the wives of other nations to gain that power. Solomon also embodied a self-absorption, a narcissism, if you want to call it that. If you take a look at the descriptions in the, in the beginning of this book of 1 Kings of his daily provisions or his luxurious palace, you will be able to see that the man lived for the security and safety of himself. He loved pleasurable living. And he embodied this self-absorption that will later work itself out in Israel's life as they seek for other things that bring them what they want. 
And then lastly, towards the end of Solomon, we find the king who built Yahweh's temple building places of worship for false gods of other nations. Israel's compromise was now complete. They were, they were a nation that desired power and position. They were self-absorbed in their life, and they found its completion in full idolatry. And now we kind of have this picture that, like, worship of Yahweh ceased, but that wasn't really the case. Worship of Yahweh and of the false gods were happening pretty much at the same time. They thought they could do both, keep with their history and their ancestors and worship Yahweh, and then somehow also worship the gods of other nations. Israel was designed to be ruled by one God, and he was their king, and he was going to lead them into a life of faithfulness and loving presence, but they wanted something else. What they wanted was to be like a nation, like the nations around them. They wanted an earthly king, and this is plan B. The temptations that led Israel astray are eerily familiar to us, are they not? We know that each of us struggles with similar things in our own lives, and they take different forms. I don't think any of us is, you know, out making marriages for political reasons, but the lust for power has long been one of the church's greatest weaknesses. And it happens as an institution, it happens as a big seed church, and it also just happens with you and me. Rather than accepting the meek and humble position of being a servant of all, we often find ourselves looking for powers of position rather than humility. And how often are you and I self-absorbed to the point that we are unable to show compassion to the people around us or have empathy with the hurting and broken? I find myself pretty much self-absorbed all the time. Maybe I'm the only one. But even my prayers, as I sit before God, I find myself always drifting to me and my needs and my wants, what I think is immediate, all the time, self-absorbed, classic narcissist. (laughs) Or even worse, there are times when false gods take the position of our Lord on the throne of our hearts, and they lead us to a place of worship that was not God's. The story of Israel falling away from plan A into plan B, from God's original design to what they wanted, uh, should remind us of our own weakness. It should remind us and bring us humility because we are aware that the same temptations are grabbing for our hearts every time we we wake up in the morning. We all live with human hearts, do we not? That can be easily taken and, and turned into worship of a false god. Are you with me? Okay. We finally come to the story. We're ready to kind of immerse ourselves into this story and kind of imagine ourselves. I want to encourage you as we we read this, try not to read this as you did when you were in history class in seventh grade, right? Try to read this using your imagination. Imagine yourself there. I know it's hard. I I don't know when the last time you worked your imagination was and just sat with nothing to do, but we're going to try tonight, okay? We're going to try to imagine ourselves there and watch this unfold. The key verse in the entire book of 1 Kings is, in my opinion, verse 21 of of our chapter. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. I don't think there's anything else that embodies the journey of Israel more than those few sentences right there. They had to choose, and they did nothing. God cannot sit 
on the throne of the heart and share it with, with you. He could not share the throne with Israel. And so Elijah, the prophet of God, he would be the one who everybody would look to of what it meant to be a prophet. This man was incredible. He worked miracles. He was a preacher. He was a prophet. He was incredible. He came and he offered a challenge. The challenge to the gods of Baal. Interestingly enough, Baal is a, was the god of thunderstorms and fertility. The god of thunderstorms could not solve their famine problem. As you know, it was not raining. And so he proposes the challenge. Two bowls on two altars. You call fire down from your god, and I will call fire down from mine. The one who answers is the real god. Walter Brueggemann, an incredible scholar on the Old Testament, reminds us that prophets characteristically summon their communities to turn from their current failings so as to be, a true, to be true to their most fundamental values. Elijah was calling his people back to authentic worship. But all the God of fertility and thunderstorms, as well as a mighty warrior um, and the protector of crops, was unable to produce rain during the famine, was also unable to answer his supporters, even as they cut themselves and bled before this God. And remember, false idols always require more and more from you until they've taken everything. A few chapters before, there's a story of during Ahab's rule of someone rebuilding Jericho, and it says that it cost him his son. Evidently, Israel was in the habit of sacrificing their sons for power at the moment. God does, Baal doesn't answer, and Elijah steps forward. He begins by creating an image of obedience and faithfulness by preparing the altar of Yahweh. He chooses 12 stones, calling Israel back to remember where they came from, calling back to their ancestors of what God had done for them in the past. He starts preparing the altar, he builds it, and he starts, he, he digs a trench around it and he pours water on it. I don't think he was pouring water on it to kind of mock the other gods or shows how God's fire is somehow hotter than another fire that could come out. I think Elijah was taking the most valuable resource during a famine and a drought and pouring it out as an offering to God. I think he was saying, I'm not just trusting you for a sign right now, I'm trusting you for the future. Me and Israel, when they come along, when you turn their hearts back, we are trusting you with our future. He pours out the water and he says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that, the Lord, that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And what does Yahweh do? He answers. He receives the offering, consuming every piece of it. Fire from heaven falls down. We love it when there's fire in the story, do we not? Fire falls down and consumes everything that there's nothing left. Yahweh displays that no matter what the people place on the throne of their heart, He is the one true God and He alone is deserving of worship. Later on, the source of sin and temptation is eradicated, and the people are left with a choice. Will they follow the one true God, or will they turn back to a defeated idol? For us in this moment, who do we imagine ourselves to be? When we read the stories of Scripture, we, 
if you read like me, maybe I'm the only one, but you, you place yourself in the story in some level, right? I think most of us would love to assume that we're Elijah, the man of God, the servant, the woman of God, calling the people back. But the reality is we're never Elijah. Hopefully, sometimes it feels like it. Maybe we are, because our self is so powerful and it calls and it it brings us back to the flesh, sometimes we feel like we're on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like something inside of us is like the prophets of Baal, thinking that the self is somehow going to solve all of our problems. But I don't think we're the prophets of Baal either. Most of the time, we're the people, caught between two sides. You and I live in a similar situation. Our God is not the God of fertility or the God of rain. Our God is the self. It's the one thing that keeps you and I from the presence of God the most. It's the one thing that when we come before him, broken as we may be, it keeps us from experiencing him in his full reality. The self is the idol on the other side of this fight. And you and I are at Mount Carmel at the same time. We are often like the people caught in between with not, not knowing where to go next. But I actually tonight don't think we're the people. I think there's another character in the story that we embody more, or at least that I want us to embody. The fire of God is really interesting in this moment because when it comes down, everything that was earthly on that altar disappeared. It wasn't just the bull. It wasn't just the altar. It was the dust. It was the water. Fire always represents God's purifying of our lives, right? And so when he purifies us, when his presence comes and he is intimate with us and he moves in our lives, nothing earthly can remain. I think tonight you and I are supposed to be the altar. I think that we are the altar that has been built. On one side is, is the self, vying for our attention, calling us daily, the flesh that pulls us into things all the time, that we place on a pedestal and say, we want this, we want that. We don't want that tonight. We want to be the altar, set before God in faithful obedience, remembering what he's done in our life and the, the, the gracious deliverance that he's pulled us from. And we want to say, God, consume everything that is earthly, in my soul so that I can be a living sacrifice to you. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, calls us to embody this image of a living sacrifice. He knew that the sacrifice of the Old Testament had ended and now you and I are the sacrifice. We put our lives in front of God and say, do what you wish, I am yours. And so tonight, as we imagine ourselves in the story of Mount Carmel, as you and I are in our own Mount Carmel, I don't know where you've come from tonight. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I know every single one of us is always faced faced with a decision to choose between Yahweh and ourselves or some God that we place instead of him. Every day there's something that pulls at at our attention. Every day there's something that calls us away from authentic worship and says, place me on your soul. I will give you everything you need. But like all all false idols, they offer a little in the beginning and then they keep asking for more and they keep asking for more. When we moderns read stories of false idol worship, 
I, I mean, sometimes we kind of laugh, like, what are you doing offering something to this statue? Like, how dumb can these people actually be? We would never do anything like that. But we really have to remember that false idols worked at some point, whether it be through the powers of darkness, which is, a, I think, but all was able to produce rain at some point. Someone poured a little wine at the altar and rain came. Right? Are you with me? Like, this doesn't just happen. Nobody just goes dancing around cutting themselves with, in front of a, 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 a statue because they just thought it was, hey, this is a great idea, let's do that, right? No. At some point, through spiritual powers of darkness, this worked. And so, the idol says, oh yeah, just pour a little wine and I will give you everything you need. And then he says, well, actually, give me this. Actually, I need you to do this. Actually, I need you to give me your blood. Actually, I want your child. And over and over and over, you're caught in this constant cycle of giving more and more to this false god. We are dealing with the same things today. The idols may not be statues in our homes, but I rest assured we have idols that have started out by asking for a little and now are requiring more of us. And every time you and I are faced with that decision, we need to embody the altar of Mount Carmel. We need to say, God, purify our souls, burn away everything inside of me, and make me holy once again. If you're following me and you're critically thinking, you've noticed that I haven't finished the grand narrative of Scripture. We went through part A, we went through part B, and now we need to revisit part A. Plan A is when God chooses his own king to rule. He chooses his son, Jesus Christ. The God-man brings the kingdom of heaven to earth. No longer... Like in plan B, would God's people have to rely on an earthly king that was not able to produce what they needed? God chose his own king. That was him. And that he would bring the kingdom of heaven to the people who had put their allegiance in him. Those who follow the kingdom of heaven and who are under King Jesus are marked by gracious deliverance, faithful obedience, and a loving presence. Jesus is plan A. And you and I, as we sit here on Mount Carmel together, are faced with a choice. The choice that, are we going to live in plan A with King Jesus, giving our whole lives to him, holding nothing back, nothing is ours, Lord, we want all of you. Or are we going to hold on to pieces, thinking that we can worship Jesus and worship this at the same time? What will we choose tonight? I think God is calling us to sacrifice the God of self. Your expression of self may be very different than mine, but I think to some level we're all self-absorbed, are we not? Yes. To some level, self is constantly vying for our attention. And so tonight what I want to do, as we kind of enter into, uh, into a time of response to the Holy Spirit, I want to sit silently for a little bit and sometimes we move so fast in our lives, we don't sit long enough to see what's really going on in the inside. And so I want to use the psalm, search me, O Lord, know my heart. 
as our kind of text as we move through this time of silence. Ask the Lord to search your heart. Ask him to know where you are failing. Ask him to reveal to you what idol is on your heart and what what is vying for the throne and that where Yahweh needs to be.